0: Find, please, the Gospel according to Matthew, the first book of the what we call the New Testament, the second portion of the Bible, Matthew chapter 5. And if you're watching by television or live stream, in just a few minutes, uh, we're going to celebrate communion in this room, and we are going to invite you to join us. So now, if you would take a minute, go get a Cracker and juice, or bread, or whatever you can find, and uh, then when we celebrate in this room, we'll turn to you and invite you uh, to join us. And just like I'll say again, you don't have to be a member of First Baptist or a Baptist. It's not our table; it's the Lord's table, so you'll be welcome. I hope you'll join us. A vandal, a vandal broke into a department store in the middle of the night. That's how the story began that uh, Soren Kierkegaard told. He was a Danish theologian and a master of metaphor. He said a vandal broke into the department store in the middle of the night, but he didn't steal anything. He just changed all the the price tags. And so the the next morning when the shoppers came in, they were surprised and somewhat delighted to find that a, a diamond necklace was Worth about ten dollars, and then the costume costume jewelry was worth uh, thousands. Sword Kierkegaard said Jesus did something like that when he when he came to Earth and gave us a different way of looking at life in the Jesus way of life. The first would be last and the last would be first. Things would be upended, our values, those things we consider to be of value. And that's never more, uh, it's it's never, nowhere is it more evident than in what we call the, the Sermon on the Mount. For in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, which we begin studying today, the winners in life are those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn. Those who are meek, those are not generally the ones that our culture would say are the winners but in the Jesus way of life our values get get upended. Today we begin this series. Some of you were, I hope all of you are in Bible study and began our series on the Beatitudes. We're doing it in the worship service and in in the Bible study classes. We're talking about these, these eight Beatitudes or blessings which form the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. These eight Beatitudes are not eight different people. They are eight characteristics, dominant characteristics of the one person who lives in the kingdom of God, or under the reign, R-E-I-G-N, under the rule of God. These are eight dominant characteristics of the follower of Jesus who looks most like Jesus. But they're pretty high goals and people have often wondered, is this achievable here on earth or do we have to wait until we get to heaven? Well uh, John Stott said that that these standards in the the Sermon on the Mount are not easily achievable by everyone and nor are they totally unachievable by anyone. Now, a quick note to begin this series, in each of these Beatitudes, you'll see a characteristic and a promise. So today we'll see blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the characteristic. And then the promise, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Next week we'll see blessed are those who mourn. That's the characteristic. We'll see the promise for they will be comforted. And we'll see that pattern throughout each of the Beatitudes. We're going to focus on the characteristics and we'll save the promises for later. We're going to focus on the poor in spirit and those who mourn and the meek and the peacemakers and And so on. Well, let's read uh, beginning in uh, chapter 5, verse 1 of Matthew, and we'll get uh, get the setting. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and uh, sat down. Now, that's a big deal. When the teacher or the rabbi sat down, that meant what's coming is really important. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you Now let's spend some time on uh, definitions. In fact, the fact, that's how we'll spend the rest of this time We're, we're going to define blessed and then we'll define pure in spirit. First, let's start, let, let's start with blessed or Blessed the Greek word there uh, in the translation of the, the original tra- uh, version of the New Testament is, uh, Testament is makarios. And that's a hard one to, uh, to translate for our New Testament scholars. It's hard when it's, it's impossible to find one English word to translate that makarios, blessed or blessed. Sometimes uh, translations will say happy. Happy are the poor in spirit, for example. And happy is a good translation, but it doesn't—it doesn't quite cover the, the depth and the breadth of this this main, this Macario's this blessed. There's no one English word that does it. So the best I, way I know to 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 describe blessed or blessed is that this this is a <clears throat> this is a contentment. that that runs deeper than your lowest emotional valley and lasts longer than your party. It is a peace that will sit with you in the hospital and stand with you in the unemployment line. It is a contentment. It is a strength. It is a strength that will hold your hand in, in divorce court and hold you up in the funeral of your dearest loved one. It is a contentment, it is a peace, it is a strength, it is a profound joy, a profound joy that nothing and no one can take away from you. So today we would say, profound joy that no one and no one can take away belongs to the poor in spirit. Happy is just, it doesn't quite get it. Happy sounds a little too glib. Happy sounds like, you know, grins and goosebumps and gumdrops. It sounds like lollipops and lemonades and blowing bubbles in the backyard. This is more, Jesus is talking about more than happy. He's talking about a something that's more profound, more lasting, more meaningful than happy. It is, a, it is a contentment, it is a peace, it is a strength, it is the joy that, uh, that nothing and no one can take away. We'll come back and revisit that. But now let's talk about poor in spirit. What does poor in spirit mean? Well, first, let's look at what it does not mean. Poor in spirit does not mean grumpy and grouchy. It does not mean fuddy-duddy, killjoy, stick in the mud. It does not mean we have no fun. Barbara Joyner, one of my favorite writers and speakers, told the story of their two daughters, Jackie and Jennifer, they lived down in Columbiana and at Columbiana Baptist Church one Sunday morning, Jackie, their elementary age daughter, went forward during the invitation to give her life to Jesus to say she wanted to be baptized. So she went down there at the conclusion of the service and the invitation and they announced that Jackie was becoming a Christian. And everybody celebrated, but Jennifer, the four-year-old little sister, Jackie's four year old little sister Jennifer was back in childcare, so she didn't know what had happened in the service. When they all got in the car, Jackie, the elementary aged sister who had declared her faith in Jesus, turned to her four year old little sister Jennifer and said, Jennifer, today I became a Christian. Oh my Lord, Jennifer said, who am I going to play with now? It's like. Jennifer was afraid, oh, she's become a Christian. She'll never be any fun anymore. <laughs> that is not poor in spirit. Poor in spirit does not mean fuddy-duddy, kill, killjoy, stick in the mud, grinches and grouches and grumps. It doesn't mean that at all. More importantly, to be poor in spirit does not mean self-loathing. Poor in spirit does not mean self-loathing. Hatred, poor in spirit, does not mean we're always beating ourselves up. Two men went to the temple to pray. Jesus began in Luke 18. One of them was a prideful, petty, pious, pompous pointer of fingers. And his only prayer was, Lord, I sure am glad I'm not like that guy. Well, that guy was so ashamed, so embarrassed, he wouldn't look to heaven. He looked downward and he beat his chest, Jesus said, and he, he cried, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said only one of them went home justified, which means just as if he'd never sinned, and it was, it was not the prideful, petty, pious, pompous pointer of fingers, it was this guy who said, I have an overwhelming tendency to do the wrong thing. I have a chronic propensity for what the Bible calls sin, and I can't fix that on my own. God have mercy on me, a sinner. But pay attention. He did not say, he did not say, God have mercy on me. I'm a useless, valueless, clueless, pointless excuse for a human being. He didn't say that. He didn't say, God have mercy on me, a worm. Have you ever heard of worm theology? It's a thing. In the Christian tradition, there's a school of thought called worm theology that says we should look at ourselves like worms. We should loathe ourselves. We should hate ourselves. We should think lowly of ourselves because we are sinners. And it comes from a hymn that many of us grew up singing. In 1707, Isaac Watts wrote, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. At the cross, it says, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. It's a song about the death of Jesus. And did my sovereign my king die would he devote that sacred head that beautiful head of his for such a worm as I that's what I grew up singing and then I, uh, I got older and went to a, went to other churches more sophisticated churches <laughs> and uh, we didn't sing worm anymore in fact, if it's in our hymnal, if you, if you look it up, it says, would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? Now, when I first heard that, I kind of grew up with worm theology, so when I first sang that, saw that it changed from worm to sinners, I thought it was a watering down of the message. I thought they, you know, this is, a, they're a bunch of liberals here. They don't believe in uh, worm <laughs> theology. They... But you know upon further review I think it's I think it's a good change It's one thing to to recognize that we are sinners by nature and by choice It's one thing to say I I have this overwhelming tendency to do the wrong thing and I can't quit. It's one thing to say I have a chronic propensity for what the Bible calls sin and I cannot solve my problem on my own. It's another thing to loathe ourselves. It's another thing to hate ourselves and always beat ourselves up. Jesus never encouraged self-loathing. When there were people who considered themselves sinners, he ate with them, he befriended them, he loved them. The only people he gave a hard time to were those smug, sanctimonious, self-righteous religious leaders. Poor in spirit does not mean we loathe ourselves because we are sinners. So what is it? Poor in spirit does not mean we're a fuddy-duddy or a grouch, and it doesn't mean we loathe ourselves. To be poor in spirit is an honest acknowledgement of our desperate need for grace. To be poor in spirit is, is to acknowledge honestly our desperate need for God's unconditional, undeserved, unlimited, unrelenting love. If you were watching, following along in the worship guide, you'll see that I titled this message, The Gift of Desperation. I learned that in the recovery community. I've heard numbers of people speak of the gift of desperation. Many of them who have, have been sober for years. And they'll talk about that wonderful moment in time when they were desperate. Step one of the 12 steps of AA says, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and our lives had become unmanageable. Until you get there, you don't get help. So they will look back, people have looked back, friends of mine who are in recovery look back and they say, that was a gift. The gift of the end of my ropeness, Uh, The gift of realizing I can't do this on my own-ness. Without that gift, they said, I'd still be addicted. It was a gift to realize my Desperation, And that is poor in spirit. It is the gift of desperation because as long as we think we're all right, we'll never turn, we'll never find that contentment and peace and strength and joy of which I spoke a moment ago. As long as we think we're good enough on our own, we'll never realize our desperate need for, for grace. Our first little church was the Lucas Grove Baptist Church out in the country in Kentucky. And one Sunday morning, the deacons, after service, the deacons were together with spouses and Carrie and I were there. I don't remember what prompted this. But Norman Patterson said, and this was almost 40 years ago, Norman said, when I get up in the morning and I look in the mirror, I often say, old boy, you ain't much. Now, Norman didn't wallow in self-pity. He, would, he did not loathe himself himself he he wasn't beating himself up he just recognized his desperate need for grace that Oh boy, that ain't, you ain't much. That's, that's poor in spirit. And so if you came here today feeling badly about yourself, you're in the right place. And if you got up this morning and looked in the mirror and at least thought something like, oh boy or oh girl, you ain't much, you are right on the verge of the kingdom of God, of the reign or the rule of God in your heart. If you got up this morning, looked in the mirror and said, Lord, you sure are lucky to have me around, then you are a long way from, from the kingdom. To be poor in spirit is to recognize our desperate need. As sinners by nature and by choice, our desperate need for grace. One man who really understood grace was Brendan Manning, I, I quote him all the time. He struggled without the demon of alcohol until he died. And because he knew he never quite measured up. He, He relied on grace, God's unconditional, undeserved, unlimited, unrelenting love. And he wrote one of his, I guess, his most famous books titled The Ragamuffin Gospel. He saw himself as a spiritual ragamuffin. And he said, Grace is like a shipwreck. And you've been thrown into the water, and you're drowning, and a plank from the wreck of the ship floats by. And you grab that plank and you hang on for dear life. You don't say, you know, I don't need that plank because I've got a great bank account. You don't say, you know, I don't need that plank because I'm executive vice president of my company. You don't say, I don't need that um, plank because my stock portfolio is doing really well. You grab the plank. And you don't brag. You know, there are other people in the water flailing like you are. You don't say, hey, over there, I've got a corner office. That doesn't matter. And you don't yell over there, hey, I, I've done a lot of good things. All those, those things don't matter. You just, you just hang on to the plank. And by the way, you know you didn't earn that plank. It just was, you just flailing in the water. And suddenly you had a, you had a plank. Grace is like that plank. We don't earn it. And once we latch onto it, those other things don't matter anymore. Our positions and portfolios, our achievements, our trophies, our accomplishments, they just don't matter in, in light of in light of the life-saving power of that of that plank, Billy Graham, of course, was the famous evangelist of the latter half of um, you know 1950 through the late 1900s. And at the at the conclusion of his um, crusades, his evangelistic services, he. He would, of course, offer an invitation. He'd, he'd invite people. They would always, he always packed out the, you know, the, the, the Colosseums or the, the, you know, the stadiums. Always, of course, thousands and thousands there and he would invite them, people to come forward and there are thousands and thousands and thousands around the world who are followers of Jesus because of those crusades. And he always, uh, always had them sing. Uh, just As I Am, which the choir sang so beautifully a moment ago. You know, they would t- cross those stadiums, just as I am, without one plea, they'd sing. And maybe, uh, maybe he, of course there's power in the song, but maybe uh, Billy Graham just liked the story behind the song, and I've got a book by Billy Graham in which he, he told the story. He said, uh, it was 1835 in London, And there was a big uh, soiree, there was a big, some kind of big social party, you know, socialites and VIPs were there, and one of the persons uh, there was uh, Cesar Milan, a a famous preacher, not to be confused with the the dog whisperer, I understand he's got the same name or a similar name, not him, but famous preacher, 1835 in London, and uh, the entertainment was a lady named Charlotte Elliott. And she thrilled the crowd and wowed the crowd with her playing and her singing. And during a break, Cesar Milan, the preacher, went to the entertainer, Charlotte Elliott, and oh, he said, you're just so wonderful. And he said, as you were playing and singing, I thought of how blessed the, um, the cause of Christ would be if only you were to dedicate your talents to his cause. But he didn't, he didn't stop there. He said, young lady, you are as much a sinner in the sight of God as a drunkard in the ditch or a harlot on the Scarlet Street. <laughs> Real tactful guy, sounds like, right? <laughs> young lady, you are as much a sinner in the sight of God as a drunkard in the ditch or the harlot on Scarlet Street, but I'm glad to tell you that the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, can cleanse from all sin. She must have looked shocked because he said, I mean no offense. Right here. <laughs> I mean no offense, he said. I pray God's Spirit will convict you. Well, at the end of the evening, Charlotte Elliott went home, probably still offended, by, you know, but the face of that preacher and his accusatory words haunted her. She would later write that um, she laid down but couldn't go to sleep. Now I don't don't recommend that approach. I do not recommend that approach. But something had pricked her heart. Now my hunch is this was not the first time she had considered this matter of following Jesus. Because she said at 2 o'clock, uh, she got out of bed, and she got a pen and a piece of paper, and she wrote, just as I am, without one plea. But that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst or invites me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I, I come. That is poor in spirit. It's not a self-loathing not being a stick in the mud. It is saying, oh boy, oh girl, you ain't, you ain't much. It is grabbing onto that plank of grace. It is, it is an honest acknowledgement of our desperate need for God's unconditional, undeserved, unlimited, unrelenting love. And the only way the only way to Jesus is just as I am. In a few minutes, we're going to sing that hymn. But first, we're going to come to the table of Jesus just as we are. And again, if you're, if you're at home and um, you have bread or whatever you have, um, we invite you now as we pass those around here. To, I'll, you hang on to it. I'll lead us all together in celebrating. So let me remind you that um, you don't have to be a Baptist, you don't have to be a member of First Baptist. This is the Lord's table, it's not not our table. If your heart is turned toward Jesus, then we invite you to mourn with us the death of Jesus, and we invite you to celebrate with us the death of Jesus. A couple of words of instruction as um, the deacons are going to come by and they're gonna, we're going to pass the, uh, the trays one time. And, I, and they're double cups. So get both cups because the, the wafer is in the bottom cup and the juice is in the top cup. If you, if you need a gluten-free wafer in the middle, the inner circle of that tray will be those gluten-free uh, wafers. But we pause uh, to remember a Thursday night when Jesus gathered with his friends much like us. It would be just a few hours until he would die. And he passed the the bread that is symbolized by that tiny wafer, and he broke it and he said, this is my body. And then he he passed the common cup of wine and spoke mysterious words, this is my body.